Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach and Marketing at the Naval Institute. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamblett, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. And also joining us is, for the third time, he's a regular co-host now, <laughs> the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, Richard Latour. Thanks, Ward. Nice to be here again. Always nice to see you here in Studio C. <laughs> this is kind of History Week. Yeah, with, we're, uh, we're doubling down on naval history this we, week. We, so we talked D-Day on yeah. uh, a couple of days ago, and now we're going to talk Midway. Yeah, we're going to talk about Midway. So our guest uh, online with us from Minneapolis, Minnesota today is John Parshall. He is uh, one of the authors of an article that's in the May-June issue of Proceedings called A Double Turn of Misfortune about the story of a U.S. submarine. Uh, sort of a bit player, a small player in uh, the Battle of Midway. Uh, but John has written for Naval History Magazine. He's written books on Midway. Uh, Richard Latour, uh, when we were talking about Midway the other day, said, "Well, the the one and you know the the, the definitive guy expert on on uh, Midway is John Parshall." So we uh, thought, let's let's do more d- naval history. We're talking now about uh, even having a naval history dedicated podcast, maybe coming up in 2020. Uh, but it's great to be talking about D-Day and about Midway and about all these uh, significant events in naval history uh, this week. And uh, I'm sure that our, our listeners are going to enjoy it. Uh, and uh, we've got some just, you know, we've had Vince O'Hara, who was a great guest the other day. And now John's on the line from Minneapolis. So, John, how's the weather out there in Minneapolis? Uh, it's actually delightful today. Good, good biking weather. Well, uh, John, I just want to point out your book, uh, Shattered Sword, The Untold Story of the Battle of Midway. And when, when did this come out? 2005? Yep. By you and Anthony Tully, your co-author. Uh, just yes. this, this is just a fantastic book. It, it did something that, uh, something that English readers at least hadn't seen. As the ja- it dissects the Japanese side of the Battle of Midway. And it's very yeah, illuminating. Right sort of unusual for that, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Can you just in brief, just give a a capsule summary of the Battle of Midway, just for our readers to start things off? Well, it happens about six months after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so these are very dark times uh, for the Allies in World War II. And a lot of things are going uh, extremely poorly for the Allies during this time. Uh, Certainly in the Pacific Basin, the Japanese have been uh, ascendant everywhere they have gone. Uh, They have ripped the Allied strategic position to shreds uh, throughout the Pacific Basin. And so the Americans at this point are very much on the defensive uh, the Japanese, on the other hand, uh, are looking for some way to bring this war to a conclusion as rapidly as possible. And unfortunately, they sort of are suffering from some strategic bankruptcy. They don't really know how to do that. Um, and the only way that they can think from a grand strategic level to, to bring that conclusion about is to basically just keep hitting the Americans as hard and as often as possible and uh, hope that, uh, that we will come to the bargaining table. And uh, Admiral Yamamoto, who is the commander-in-chief of Combined Fleet, uh, the largest fleet in, in the Japanese Navy, brings a, a notion for basically trying to lure America's remaining aircraft carriers out of Pearl Harbor, bringing them to battle someplace reasonably close by 
uh, and destroying them and thereby uh, inducing the Americans to negotiate. Uh, the site that he picks is the island of Midway, which is about 1,300 miles to the northwest of Oahu. Uh, he picks it because it's far enough away from Oahu that Oahu's uh, aircraft can't become involved in that fight, but it's close enough to Pearl Harbor that he thinks that the American carriers will come out to play. The other um, interesting piece about Midway is that it is a potential foothold in the Hawaiian island chain. And if he can work his way down that chain and eventually capture Oahu, which is you know further down in his playbook, he knows that Oahu would be a very powerful bargaining chip to have in the bag uh, if he ever gets the Americans to the negotiating table. So that's the basis for the battle, uh, is, is uh, Yamamoto trying to figure out a way to put this war to bed sometime before the end of 1942. So what's the basic TikTok of how it unfolded, including some of the missteps that led to the outcome? And we're talking about 4 June, and then we'll focus on 5 June, which is the topic of sure. your article in the current issue of Naval History. Suffice to say that uh, the Japanese bring four aircraft carriers to the battle, um, and the Americans have three. The Japanese do not know that the Americans are there. They do not know that the Americans have broken uh, their operational codes and have been given scant time to scramble and put together a battle plan uh, and to get their three remaining uh, aircraft carriers up to the northeast of Midway Island. So the Japanese come in blinds, not expecting any sort of American naval opposition, um, and launch a very powerful strike against the island of Midway itself, attempting to put it out of business and uh, soften it up in preparation for uh, an invasion uh, in, in the next couple of days. Unbeknownst to the Japanese, uh, the Americans get better scouting data um, and there's a lot of back and forth throughout the morning of, of 4th of June as uh, the Japanese uh, eventually become aware that there is an American carrier task force uh, off on their flank and uh, begin trying to move themselves into position to attack that force, but they are constantly under attack themselves by American carrier aircraft, particularly uh, a number of our torpedo plane squadrons which go in in squadron-sized packets, are blown to bits by the Japanese combat air patrol. And finally, um, through sheer luck, the Americans get two separate groups of dive bombers, uh, one group from the Enterprise and one group from the Yorktown, coming in against the Japanese carrier force from two different directions. Um, and at this point, uh, the Japanese combat air patrol um, system sort of breaks down catastrophically. Uh, the Americans are allowed to come in uh, unimpeded overhead, and those uh, two dive bomber groups launch an attack against three of the four Japanese carriers and knock them out in the space of about five minutes. So at that point, uh, uh, the battle the, has completely changed in terms of its overall complexion. It is now the Americans that are on the offense. Uh, there's a number of actions during uh, the afternoon where the sole remaining Japanese carrier, the Hiryu, tries counterattacking, but of course her air power is going into sort of a downward spiral uh, throughout this time. 
and about supper time, she is caught uh, by um, the remaining American aircraft from the two remaining operable flight decks on the American side, and she too is uh, put out of action. So the Japanese end up losing all four of their carriers that afternoon. The Americans end up losing only one, the Yorktown, uh, to a submarine attack a few days afterwards. But it's a a huge uh, turning point in the war for the Americans. It allows us, at a strategic level, to come out of this defensive crouch that we've been in for the past six months and start to contemplate uh, how we might begin counterattacking against the Japanese it's really the doorway then to the Guadalcanal campaign that ends up unfolding a couple of months later. So it's a very important event in, in World War II history. So a, a couple of other details uh, about the, the battle leading up to the ultimate um, victory. Because I think we just, in our passing view of history, you're just like, oh yeah, we won the Battle of Midway and it was a turning point. But when you get into the yeah. TikTok, starting with the way that the Japanese carrier groups approached Midway was very circuitous, uh, including the, you know, part of that, that initial uh, fleet sailed off to the Aleutians um, as, as mm-hmm. both a, a strategic uh, or a tactical uh, a battle plan, but also as a, 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 a feint of sorts. Um, so that's kind of fascinating how they didn't just, you know, leave the mainland and, and just haul ass right from Midway. The other thing is right. in the early phase of the battle, we were not doing very well. You know, and this is where, as you mentioned at the outset, it had only been six months. And this just, every time I think about this, it blows my mind. Six months from Pearl Harbor until Midway. Six months. Nothing happens in six months these days. <laughs> you know, we've been at war right. for 18 years, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we're sort right, of still right. doing the same thing. But in six months, Absolutely. we went from that surprise to the most consequential battle. As you said, the Japanese plan was to break our will by sinking all of our carriers and broker some sort of peace agreement. You know, that was the, yeah. they didn't want to get into an extended war with us. Um, and so when you look at it through that lens and you sort of uh, accept that maybe things didn't have to go the way they did, it becomes really fascinating. So the early skirmishes in the initial part of the battle, a couple of things were reviewed. The, the Japanese had better fighter airplanes in the form of the Zero. I'd forgotten that we were using buffaloes. I mean, how old are those yeah. airplanes, right? And they're grapes. Those things can't maneuver. Well, you know, actually, I think the buffalo, to an extent, gets kind of a bad rap. If you really want to get down in the weeds and take a look at things like, you know, wing loading and power to weight ratios and stuff like that, the buffalo is actually not that uncomparable to the wildcat. Okay. I a lot of what was going on over midway that morning. And yes, there was a squadron of buffaloes there. And, and yes, they absolutely get ripped to pieces by uh, the Zeros. A lot of what's happening there, though, is that those marine aviators don't have the proper uh, tactical doctrine to know how to fight a Zero. You get into a dogfight with a Zero, even with a late war fighter like a, you know, a Corsair, you can be in serious trouble. That, that plane can outturn you. Yes. So mm-hmm. if, if you don't go up with the correct tactics, you're, you're in a world of hurt. Right. So uh, that, not, that gets back you know, to the six-month anyway. piece, right? Mm-hmm. The, so yeah. not a whole lot of time. And then the other thing that revealed itself, besides the inability to do air-to-air comparable to the Japanese pilots, um, was the Dauntless uh, squadron didn't have a whole lot of success in the initial runs 
on the yeah. uh, the the Japanese carrier task force, right? We we were we didn't right. we dropped a number of bombs. None of them came close. Had a submarine. The Nautilus actually missed, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and so the Japanese were really professional. They knew how to maneuver. They really showed that they, they know how to do carrier task force warfare. And so yep. if you were to at halftime, it looked like we were going to get our asses handed to us. Is my point? <laughs> right? No, that's 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 fair enough. You know, the thing that, that makes the Japanese carrier force uh, so formidable was their ability to mass air power and coordinate it between multiple flight decks. The, the only reason that the Japanese were able to pull off an attack like Pearl Harbor, for instance, was that they could, you know, maneuver six aircraft carriers in a tight tactical unit, mm-hmm. put all of their aircraft up or about half of them apiece from each of the carriers get those planes formed up into one big tactical grouping and get them off to a target in the space of, you know, 10 to 15 minutes. The Americans couldn't have dreamed of being able to do that kind of stuff. So in terms of their deck operations, the Japanese were definitely much more sophisticated than we were at this point in the war. The problem, though, is that you've got sort of a two-edged sword here. When you concentrate your aircraft carriers in order to facilitate their being able to concentrate their aircraft, that ends up putting all of your eggs into one basket. If you can't defend those aircraft carriers from incoming air attacks, you've got a problem. You know, throughout the morning, as you point out, uh, the Americans, since we can't run our own flight decks nearly as well as the Japanese, we're sending off, I think at one point, there were six different groups of American aircraft out, you know, searching around the Pacific, um, none of whom were coordinated at all. Uh, and that meant that when our torpedo planes came in, starting at about, you know, 0917 in the morning, they come in in single packet squadron sizes and, uh, and then just chewed to pieces by the Japanese combat air patrol. That's an easy target to take on because you've got a single squadron coming in at a single altitude along a single vector. The game completely changes, though, later on in the morning. These carriers are not operating with radar. They don't have a combat information center. They have no means of centrally coordinating their fighter uh, cover overhead. So when the Americans uh, come in at 1020, they've got not only these two groups of dive bombers, but there's also a third squadron of torpedo planes, VT-3, is coming in along uh, at lower altitude, a medium altitude. So now the Japanese are presented with this multi-altitude, multi-vector attack and their cap arrangements break down completely. So you're right, there's there's this dramatic shift at 1020 between the way the battle looks like it's going up until this point, and then all of a sudden, you know, in five minutes' time, the complexion changes entirely. I wanted to go back to and address, you had an earlier comment regarding uh, sort of the dispersed battle plan of the Japanese as a whole. You know, they sent a carrier task force up to the Aleutian Islands. It really wasn't a feint. Um, actually, the Japanese figured that we were going to be so busy doing other things that they could just grab sections of the Aleutian Islands while we were uh, being taken care of elsewhere. That's one of the sort of the, the classic myths about the battle is that the Aleutians were a feint designed to draw the American carriers out of Pearl Harbor and get them up uh, to midway in time. Uh, in actuality, if you look at the Japanese source material, it's clear that that's not at all what it was. It was really sort of an expedient land grab. But this is one of the problems with the, the Japanese battle plan. Instead of sending just one great big task force off to midway and crushing it, 
they actually have, you know, about a dozen different formations of warships running around in the Pacific uh, all at the same time. The reason the Japanese do that is because they are convinced that the American Navy by this point in the war is demoralized and is going to have to be lured out. So they don't want to show their entire hand all at one time. Um, they're concerned that if they came in one great, big, humongous task force, that we would just sit in Pearl Harbor and say, fine, you can have Midway. And that's not what they wanted. So they don't want to tip their hand too soon, and that's, that's the reason for the dispersion of their forces. The, <laughs> the problem with that then becomes that when one of those forces uh, gets into trouble, namely Nagumo's carrier force off of Midway, there ain't nobody near at hand that can help him out. And the problem for him is that at the tip of the spear, the forces that are going at each other on the morning of 4 June off of Midway are relatively evenly matched. You know, you've got Nagumo with his 21 ships against the Americans, and they've got 24. Um, the number of aircraft is roughly comparable. It's actually slightly in the Americans' favor. And, of course, we have a flight deck in the form of Midway Island that can't be sunk. So mm -hmm. there's some real problems with, with the Japanese planning. It did not set them up well for victory. Uh, John, you mentioned the myth of Midway. I, want to, I was wondering if you could talk about someone who, I guess some people would characterize him as a myth maker of Midway. Mm -hmm. And we're talking yep. about Commander Mitsuo Fushida, who in 1955 yep. came out with a book about the Battle of Midway, published by the U.S. Naval Institute, that yep. had a major impact on the way the battle was interpreted. So could you just speak for a moment about that? Yeah, absolutely. So Fujita, Fujita was a big shot. You know, he was uh, a Kagi, which is the, the flagship. He was a Kagi's air group commander. He was the flight leader at Pearl Harbor. He's the guy that sends the, the famous Tora, Tora, Tora signal. Um and yes, as you mentioned, after the, after the war, he writes a book called Midway, the Battle that Doomed Japan. And that book was translated into English uh, very quickly after it came out. And it becomes one of the three major Japanese sources that make it into English. The other two are Admiral Nagumo's battle report, which was captured on Saipan during the war in 1944. And is eventually translated into English in 1947. So that's the Nagumo report. And the third one is the series of interviews that the United States uh, Strategic Bombing Survey did right after the war. And they interviewed uh, Fuchida as part of these as well. So those, uh, the US-BUS uh, reports, as we call them, those are the third major source that made it into Japanese the, or into English. The, the problem with <laughs> with Fuchida's book is that he lies about a lot of stuff. Um, and he lies about Pearl Harbor. He lies about some of the other early war operations in the Indian Ocean. And he lies about Midway. But the reason he... Fuchida was a fascinating guy. He was very charismatic. Um, he ends up becoming a, a, an evangelical Christian after the war. And, and he's actually more popular in the U.S. in, in some ways than he is uh, in Japan. And he was not the kind of guy that was going to let, you know, facts stand in the way of telling a really compelling war story. He's a fighter pilot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going there. Um, but, but the thing that's driving all of this, think about what the 
staff officers within First Air Fleet must be thinking on about June 6th or 7th as they're heading back to Japan. They've lost four aircraft carriers, the four finest aircraft carriers in the Japanese inventory. Two-thirds of their big flight decks have gone glub, glub, glub in the course of an afternoon. You know that when you get back to Japan, there's going to be a little explaining that has to go on here. You know, how did you guys end up losing this battle so catastrophically? And so what Fujita really is, is sort of the front man for this cabal of first air fleet officers that are looking to frankly cover their butts. And they come up with a story that instead of pointing individual fingers of blame at various commanders, basically weaves this story of, oh, baby, we were this close. We were so close to being able to take out the Americans. Our counterstrike was this close to taking off. Oh, and then suddenly the gods of war came down and snatched it all away from us. And it turns out that that's all baloney, that actually at the time of the 1020 dive bomber attack that takes out Akagi, Kaga, and Soryu, the Japanese counter-strike was nowhere near being ready to go. Their strike aircraft were still down in the hangar decks, actually. No aircraft on the flight decks gassed up the and few, loaded with the bombs? The few aircraft that were on those flight decks at that point in time were combat air patrol fighters. So we know, for instance, in the case of, of Akagi, that there were three zeros on the flight deck at the time she was bombed. One of them had just taken off. But Akagi's air group records, which we have and which have been translated and which give us a tremendous amount of detail about every single guy that took off from an aircraft carrier that day, when he went up, when he came down, what ordinance he carried, yada, yada, yada. So we know exactly when Akagi was conducting flight ops, and it's quite clear that at the time um, she was attacked, she had no aircraft on the flight deck, and the only planes that were taking off um, were these combat air patrol fighters. Anyway, um, Fuchita spins us this myth, and we, as Americans, of course, I, I think he was brilliant in, in how he put together this sort of fable that plays to our American desires for you know, plucky heroes, uh, plucking victory out of the jaws of defeat mm. at the very last minute, you know, the cavalry come in and save the day. It mm. just it just lined up perfectly with our perception around how that battle went. Mm. And because the Japanese records are so damn difficult to use, I mean, all of these carrier air group records are in scribbled handwritten Japanese on these mimeographed forms that were, you know, kept by the assistant air officer on each carrier. Nobody wants to go into the archives and dig these things out and actually use them. Um, it was not until a friend of mine, a guy named Jim Saruk, who's an amateur, um, but he just thinks that translating these air group records is the most fun you can possibly have. <laughs> thousands of pages. I kid you not. He's a great guy. Um, He's got thousands of pages of these records called Kota Choshos sitting in his basement. And God help us if his you know, house ever goes up in flames. But anyway, he translated all the air group records and he gave them to us. And it makes it, you know, as I say, absolutely clear what's going on in the flight decks. How, how did so, those, hey, John, how did those air group records survive the sinking of the carriers? They were actually taken off the ships by the air group officers. A lot of records actually made it off of these carriers. The logs of all of these 
uh, carriers mm-hmm. made it off of the carriers. But they were deliberately destroyed after the war. Uh, between the time that the America that the ceasefire happened and the Americans actually started occupying Japan, there was about a two-week time period there, and there was a lot of burning going on <laughs> because the Japanese wanted to get rid of any incriminating evidence on a whole range of topics, as you can imagine. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of the records uh, having to do with Midway went up in smoke. But the air group records apparently were not considered very important. And they also had been used for uh, promotional purposes and personnel record kind of purposes. And so they were spared and they were captured by the Americans and um, microfilmed, brought back over to the States, microfilmed and kept in the archives up until the mid-60s when we gave them back to Japan. So that's how they got off of there. But they, they lay untouched and untranslated, even though they were in the microfilm records for years and years, decades. It wasn't until Jim Starrock got a hold of them and started translating them in the late, uh, early 1990s that they were actually in any sort of usable form for a researcher. So that, that, that was after, I mean, landmark books about Midway, such as uh, Gordon Prang's exactly. Miracle at Midway had been written. Yeah, that's, yep, that's... exactly. It's, it's interesting stuff, you know, and I think Lord... You know, Lord's book is still wonderful. Um, and, you know, Prang's book, uh, which was actually written by his, his graduate students, uh, Donald Goldstein and Catherine Dillon. Um, I don't want to go into the personal matters. Let's just say those air group records were available to Goldstein had he wished to use mm-hmm. them. But I don't know that he was aware of their existence or if he was, he didn't want to go through the hassles um, of actually translating them. Plus, um, he had extensive notes from Fuchida. Fuchida was a great friend of Gordon Prang, and so I think from Goldstein's standpoint, he's like, well, I'm just going to use the source materials that are handy to hand here, and he never bothered to use the Japanese interview records. Oh, well. So I, I want to ask a question uh, related to the intelligence part of the of the battle, and a lot of U.S. Navy veterans and uh, those on active duty and many of our readers are very familiar with the, and you, you touched on it early on in the in the interview about the JN25 code, about how uh, U.S. cryptology and intelligence had broken that code and was able to read some of uh, you know, the Japanese message traffic and were able to discern what the target was and figure out that Midway was the target. Uh, and so much as, you know, a lot of credit is given to the U.S. intelligence uh, effort, right, for sending for Nimitz getting his uh, his carriers underway and getting Spruance up there in place uh, to intercept the Japanese uh, uh, task force, right? But you also... Fletcher, really. Uh, I mean, Fletcher okay. is the overall commander. Spruance is under him. Gotcha, so, gotcha. Um, yeah. But you also touched on the the luck aspect. So, yeah, okay, so you, you got the intel. You know what the objective is. You know the Japanese are coming with a large task force with carriers... Uh, you know that it's midway and you roughly know where they're coming from and when they're going to get there, you know, plus or minus a day or so. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of luck that happens in the battle. It could have gone either way. So would you illuminate a little bit of some of those luck, some of those aspects that when you read it, you the hair goes up on the back of my neck because this, you know, seminal battle, this pivotal battle in World War II, it really could have gone the other way. You know, I think the, the luckiest uh, event for us, again, is just somehow managing to get these two groups 
of aircraft closing in on the target at roughly the same time and from two different directions. That was by no means coordinated uh, on our part. Yorktown was the most experienced of the three carriers uh, at the battle. She had fought down in Coral Sea, and so she actually ran her flight decks a little bit better than either Hornet or Enterprise did. And so she manages to get a reasonably coordinated strike package up off of her deck, uh, which comprises a squadron of dive bombers, a squadron of torpedo planes, that's BT-3, and then a, a package of, of six fighters. And they, they go off looking for the Japanese in a reasonably coordinated manner, although the torpedo planes are flying at a lower altitude than the dive bombers are. Meanwhile, you've got two squadrons of dive bombers from the Enterprise, uh, VB-6 um, and VS-6, who are you know, sent off to a point in the ocean uh, where they are told that the Japanese uh, carrier task force will be. And when they roll in there, they see nothing. Um, it is sea and sky and clouds and not a, not a ship in sight anywhere. And meanwhile, their fuel gauges are really ticking down relatively quickly. It's, it's looking really dicey here. The commander of that group, McCluskey, Wade McCluskey, makes the decision to, you know, do a box search and heads off in what turns out to be the right uh, general direction. And lo and behold, uh, a few minutes into that search, and another piece of tremendous luck, across his windshield comes the wake of a single ship, and it's a destroyer, which had been uh, holding the USS Nautilus down uh, had that submarine had made an attack on the carrier task force earlier in the in the day, and this sub uh, this destroyer was holding its head down long enough for the carriers to skedaddle out of that area. Well, with that mission accomplished, this Japanese destroyer is hightailing it, trying to catch back up with the fleet. Well, McCluskey sees this ship, and he's like, "They must know where they're going. Let's follow them." and follows that destroyer for a few minutes, and then, lo and behold, the Japanese show up in his windshield, uh, the, the entire carrier task force. So by hook or crook, you know, we managed to get these two groups of aircraft uh, into the same general neck of the woods. Uh, they have no idea that each group is there. But if, if we don't somehow manage to conjure up this multi-axial, multi-altitude threat against the Japanese... Do those attacks go in as successfully against the Japanese? Heck if I know. Um, it's a real unknown. Mm. So that, I think, is uh, one big piece of luck. The other part, uh, during the actual attack itself, the Enterprise planes come in against two different carriers, the Kaga and the Akagi. There's a communication snafu between the two squadrons, between Wade McCluskey uh, and his subordinate, Dick Best, who's the commander of Bombing Squadron 6. And I won't go into the doctrinal details, but suffice to say that when you've got two squadrons of aircraft and two different carrier targets, you want to designate one of those squadrons for each of the carriers, right? You want to hit them both. Unfortunately, things get screwed up, and both of the squadrons end up going after the Kaga, except for Dick Best, uh, who realizes what's going on, pulls out of his own dive, manages to pull two of his wingmen out of their dives. So now he's got three aircraft, and he looks over and he sees that the Akagi is going to get off scot-free. If Akagi escapes this fight, it is very, very bad for us, because on board the Akagi right now, you've got a gentleman named Murata, 
who is the head torpedo plane pilot, uh, really for the entire Japanese carrier fleet. He was the torpedo plane leader um, at Pearl Harbor, whose units just absolutely savaged Battleship Row. Mm -hmm. So this guy is a pro, and all of his uh, aviators in his torpedo plane squadron on Akagi are likewise Pearl Harbor veterans. This is probably the most lethal torpedo plane squadron in the world. So the last thing we want to do is let Akagi off the hook, because if we do, Murata and the boys are going to be up on the flight deck along with Hiryu in about 30 minutes, launching their, their counter-strike. Dick Best hustles over there with his three-plane element, which is not exactly you know sufficient force to go after the flagship of, of the Japanese carrier force, but you know down they come, and uh, Akagi begins maneuvering wildly, Three bombs drop. Two of them are near misses, um, but it's pretty clear from the forensics that the one bomb that does hit is that of Dick Best, who was renowned within the dive bomber ranks as being a guy who would hold his dives down to the very last minute. This guy was a pro, and he nails Akagi uh, right in the middle of her flag, uh, flight deck and causes fires that put her out of commission. So that's another real nail-biter there, too. You know, if Dick Best does not do his thing uh, for us, it's potentially a game-changer for the rest of the afternoon because, you know, now the Japanese, instead of fighting one carrier versus three, are fighting two against three with some very high-quality units, and who knows how that turns out. Jonathan, let's pivot to your article in the current issue of Naval History Magazine, which deals with the events of 5 June. Uh, set it up for yeah. us. Yeah, so we just recently wrote an article talking about uh, the submarine Tambor and her commander, John Murphy. So in the, the evening, right after the battle, the Japanese carriers are all on fire now, right? And uh, a, a great victory has apparently been won, except that the Americans don't really know that. We know that we've put some carriers out of action, but we don't know if the Japanese are going to retreat or not. Um, and so there are a lot of very nervous people on the island of Midway and back in Oahu. Uh, Admiral Nimitz, the overall American commander who's back in Hawaii, is really biting his fingernails because he doesn't know how this thing is going to go down uh, the following morning. So Tambor is off to the west of Midway, and she is uh, doing her lonely patrolling at about 2 in the morning, when lo and behold... Uh, across her bow, at several miles, her lookouts sight this quartet of fast-moving shapes. And it's clear that they're pretty big ships, but they don't know whose they are. You know, they could be Japanese, they could be American. Um, they've received word that, the, that American ships may be operating in their area, so they don't, you know, they want to be fairly cautious about how they approach this problem. Well, John Murphy turns his submarine um, and he sights another, another pack of ships just as soon as he turns. There's another pack that seems to be trailing off this initial quartet. He can't make out who they are, and you know he loses them relatively shortly. But he, he goes and tries to tail this fast-moving quartet of, of big ships. Well, they ditch him. Um, the, this group of cruisers, and they are Japanese heavy cruisers, um, are on a bombardment mission that are off uh, to try to basically put Midway out of business with surface guns, uh, if they can do it. So he goes hightailing off of this group of cruisers, and they ditch him because they're doing, you know, 32 knots, and he's only doing 18. So they lose, he loses them in the gloom and tries to come back about and uh, 
see if he can locate that earlier group of ships that he had seen. And lo and behold, a few minutes later, another group of ships shows up uh, charging north towards him. This other group, the Quartet, had been heading off uh, to the east towards Midway. Well, suffice to say that we've got a very uh, difficult tactical situation. It's a very confused situation. Murphy has seen ships heading east. Now he sees a group of ships bearing down on him heading north. Um, the point is that he does not make an immediate sighting report. Um, he waits for a while to let the tactical situation sort of clarify. And it becomes a very frustrating night for John Murphy. He sees groups of ships heading east, heading north, heading south, and then eventually heading west. Um, and because of his tardy uh, sighting report uh, to Admiral Spruance and to Nimitz, the bottom line is that the next morning, Spruance is not in a position uh, to capitalize on the victory that has been won uh, the following day. And unfortunately for Murphy, when he's going to end up tying up uh, at, at Oahu on the 16th of June, he's going to be relieved of his command by a very frustrated uh, Admiral Nimitz uh, and a frustrated submarine commander uh, in charge of this battle, and he's going to be put out to pasture. What we explore in this article is just how confused that night was. And the fact that the second group of ships that come bearing down on him out of the gloom are actually not the cruisers, as has been commonly supposed for the last 65 years or so, but is actually a group of Japanese destroyers that were following along in the cruiser group's wake and exploring how, you know, all of these various sighting reports, actually Murphy was within his rights not to send off a sighting report because the situation was so confused with enemy ships running this way and that, that even if he had sent in accurate reports, he probably would have confused his superiors even further. So that's that's what this, this current article is about, kind of a deep dive. Well, the, the other details that I found fascinating are the difference in terms of fuel specs between the cruisers and the destroyers, and so the destroyers had to go slower in order to make it all the way. Yep. That, that kind yep. of thing. There's also an unintended consequence to the lead group of Japanese ships when they spot um, the submarine because of the aspect change. And now you can see the wake and the, the, all that sort of thing. Can you talk, describe what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, John Murphy ends up wrecking um, half of Cruiser Division 7, uh, this Japanese cruiser group. As soon as they've disappeared in the gloom and Murphy has lost them, at that very moment, up to the bridge of the, the flagship of this group of cruisers, the Kumano, comes this order from Admiral Yamamoto aborting this bombardment mission and basically saying, get out of there. Fall back on the main body. You know, um, you're in dangerous territory now. You're going to be way too close uh, to Midway come the morning. So this group of cruisers turns about and they start heading off uh, away from Midway to the northwest to fall back on Yamamoto's uh, main body. And lo and behold, the first thing they sight within minutes of having turned about is the wake of John Murphy's submarine tambor. And calamity ensues because the Kumano lookouts see this submarine, um, although Murphy doesn't see them. And they signal, oh, my God, you know, there's a submarine here. Take hard evasive turn to port. And Kumano and Suzuya, the two front cruisers, almost collide with each other. And then the two rearmost cruisers, Mikuma and Mogami, uh, they do end up colliding 
with each other uh, in the midst of this wild maneuvering by these four uh, cruisers trying to avoid this submarine up ahead. Uh, yeah, Makuma uh, gets run into by Mogami. Mogami's bow gets crushed, and Makuma gets a, a big uh, gash in her fuel oil tanks right below the port bridge. And so now she's leaking oil. These two ships now try limping out of the way of Midway's air-based uh, or land-based air power. They're attacked uh, on the 6th and uh, to no great effect. But then Spruance eventually comes south with his carriers um, and attacks them uh, and destroys uh, the Makuma, uh, detonates the torpedoes that she still has aboard her. And so these, these two cruisers pay a very heavy price for their unintended uh, rendezvous with John Murphy's tambor. Doesn't do Murphy any, any good, though. He doesn't even know what he's done to these ships. Uh, and as I say, uh, when he ties up at, at uh, Oahu uh, in Pearl Harbor on the 16th, he's relieved of command. Well, because Nimitz and Spruance don't know what he's done to these ships either, right? I mean, there's no way exactly. to attribute that outcome to his, his actions, intended or otherwise. Exactly. And Nimitz, Admiral Nimitz was a, a submariner himself and was extremely unhappy with the performance of the submarines during the battle um, and says that, you know, Tambor passed up an unexcelled opportunity uh, to mount a torpedo attack against these uh, cruisers. In fact, that was not true. Yeah. Um, those cruisers were never within easy torpedo range of Tambor to begin with. And, of course, nobody knows at this time on the American side that American submarine torpedoes are extremely defective. And even if he'd hit those cruisers with a torpedo, there's no guarantee whatever that he actually would have done any damage. Well, as a reminder to the audience, and we've mentioned this on the podcast before, yes, in fact, Admiral Nimitz was a submariner because Lieutenant Chester Nimitz contributed to proceedings in 1912, which could be called the definitive call to action for the U.S. Navy to get its act together in the submarine world. Uh, so we entreat members to go into the archives of USNI.org and check out that article, 1912, exactly, I think it's March. December, I'm December, sure. December yeah. issue. Uh, Lieutenant Chester yeah, Nimitz writes a, a pretty amazing article about the sub game. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Hey, John, we're, we're running out of time. But one more question before we uh, wrap things up. Uh, going back up to the strategic level now, as the battle winds up and as Nagumo and his task force head home, uh, how is the, uh, you know, at, at Japanese high command, at not Yamamoto's level and at the, em at the uh, emperor's level, the news that they've lost this battle, this battle that they were hoping to use to knock the Americans out of the war definitively, to get the Americans to sue for peace, to, you know, essentially take control of the entire Western Pacific. It has gone terribly badly for the Japanese. How is it viewed strategically and how do they try to bounce back from that? Well, it's interesting because you would expect after a calamity like this that heads would roll, but they didn't. And the reason for that is that the Japanese, uh, from the emperor on down, are trying to cover up and hide from the Japanese people and even from other members of the military um, what had occurred at the battle. 
And so the, the Navy and the Army, uh, the Japanese Navy and Army, had a, a, just a gothically dysfunctional relationship and hated each other. And so the Navy is looking for ways to protect itself from inter-service rivalries with the Army and is very slow in letting the Army even know, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, by the way, guys, we lost four aircraft carriers here. Um, but what ends up happening is the emperor issues an official rescript declaring that Midway was a great victory. And only a little bit down the road do they finally admit that, oh, yeah, we actually lost one carrier and there's another one that's, you know, damaged and kind of off of the rolls. Um, the injured crewmen are sequestered from uh, any sort of civilian contact. They're kept in... Um, quarantined hospitals, and then as quickly as they're healed up, they are sent off to the South Pacific to other commands as replacements to keep them out of Japan. Um, so there's this huge cover-up operation that goes on. The other thing that ends up happening is that Admiral Yamamoto, at this point in time, is sort of the equivalent of, uh, he, he's a military rock star in Japan because his name is seen as associated with all of the victories that the Japanese have piled up to this point in the war. So if you declare that Midway was actually a victory, you can't very well go cashiering Admiral Yamamoto because then people are going to start asking questions <laughs> as to what the heck happened here. So the entire upper command staff Yamamoto, Nagumo, all of the staff officers, none of them get cashiered. And, you know, the, the band played on is kind of, is kind of the way things go that the Japanese do not want to face up to the reality of what has just happened to them. Wow, that's just an incredible story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> Politics and the military are intermingled, really? What, what a shock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Completely shocking. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, for our listeners, we've had on the podcast today as our guest, uh, Jonathan Parshall. He is the author in the latest issue of, uh, of Naval History Magazine, the May-June issue, uh, an article called a, a Double Turn of Misfortune. It begins on page uh, 4243, um, and he's also a multi-time uh, author in Naval History Magazine, including in the uh, June 2017 issue, an article called Grading Midway's Commanders, which is just a terrific uh, uh, article. Uh, and a reminder that uh, for Naval Institute members and subscribers to Naval History Magazine, you can go back in the archive and read all of those articles. Uh, and I would also commend to you his uh, amazing book, Shattered Sword, The Untold Story of Midway, which was not published by the Naval Institute, but is a terrific book. Absolutely. Uh, John, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, for our members who are not subscribers to Naval History, uh, it is an amazing magazine, comes out six times a year. Uh, for If you're not a member of the Naval Institute, you can subscribe for $35 a year. If you are a member, uh, uh, subscription is twenty two seventy five, and so it is a it is a bargain. It is definitely a world beater in terms of uh, military and naval history magazines. So, uh, John, thanks for joining us today. Uh, amazing, thanks so much for having me. Amazing conversation. I learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners as well did. And it just this conversation is another reminder that victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. We'll catch you again next week. Mm -hmm.